Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this week, I thought we'd get going with some learning, some debunking, some demystifying. And I hope that out of the end of this, you'll have new appreciation for something which is a very common part of your world, my world, everybody's world, and yet is out of this world. And I think in a second, you're going to see just how good my wordsmithing is. This week, I want to talk about the moon. So the moon is obviously a pretty big deal when it comes to seafarers. We all know it's got something to do with the tides. We all know it's got something to do with stargazing and, and working out where we are on the face of the planet and you can use it to work. But it's all a bit vague, isn't it? Let's be honest. Like It's up there. We can theoretically see it all the time, but most people are not actually going out of their way unless they're astronomers to take time to really look at the moon. So I thought we've got an hour here. Let's just talk about the moon a little bit and we can talk a little bit about the cultural history and some of the, you know, werewolves and vampires and all that stuff. But once you get rid of that, once you get rid of the weird stuff, which is not connected to reality, once you start to dig into the science, you discover this huge magical world connected to the moon. Can you believe it? Which I find personally mind boggling. So let's jump in first and start with, I guess, what you might expect, where where does it all kind of come from? All the mysticism and the, the romanticism and everything to do with the moon. Where, in fact, does the name come from? So we could start that out very easily. Moon comes from Old English and then from, from Germanic and Proto-Germanic languages before that, where it's either Mona or Menon, or you can go further back into Proto-Indo-European, um, and then you're getting back to Mensis. And these words all relate to month or measure as in measure of time so the moon and its connectivity to human calendar and scheduling and the movement of time that is a very old connection now the kind of funny thing with the moon capital m is that now every other satellite like that throughout the solar system is also called a moon so there's lots of a moons, but there's only one the moon, if you see what I mean. But the moon actually does have some other names. And the first one, of course, you're going to be shouting out is Luna. Absolutely. The Roman goddess Luna was the personification of the moon. And so the lunar module and uh, lunar orbit and lunar tick, of course, all come from Luna, but the moon has had other names. It was called Cynthia. That's not really used that much, but the one that is used a lot is Celine. The moon's name, I think, is a nicer way of putting it, is Celine. Okay, and we still use this word quite a lot. If you're Michael Collins and you're going round and round the moon in Apollo 11 in 1969, you could say you're in lunar orbit, but actually, technically, you're in a selenocentric orbit. Okay, it's still used there. Um, people that study the topography and the geology of the moon, that's selenography. <laughs> I hope I've spelled, said that correct. But that word selene is still at the bottom of it. And selene obviously gives you selenium, which is uh, a non-metal element which is in anti-dandruff shampoo and was a key element i believe in the film evolution with david duchovny in 2001 so there you go there's uh <laughs> celine is of the night and i guess if you've watched any of those underworld films is she not called celine and that that vampire so maybe now know where that comes from but um celine if we're going to refer to the moon as that um where did it come from is something which has been on people's minds for quite a long time. And uh, our man, Galileo Galilei, who of course is uh, one of the first people to look up into the sky and start asking some questions like, <laughs> is this really just a you know, giant glass dome with uh, people opening windows to let buckets of rain in? He was around in the 1600s, right? And he starts to hear word of this optical instrument that's been developed by uh, Dutch opticians, I believe. And he thinks, oh, maybe I could get this. He's heard that there's this thing that allows you to see stuff that's far away. He thinks maybe I can get that and start to understand more about the heavens. And until that point, 
the moon, Selene, if we want to call her that, um, was seen as just being like a, an icy crystal perfection in, in the heavens. So there was no other way of putting it. It was just the embodiment of all that was perfect in the world. But of course, as soon as Galileo got his early telescope set up and started looking at it in more detail, he realized very quickly that it was far from being perfect. And in fact, it had all of the features of the planet. It's got craters. It's got what they thought were seas at the time. They saw the darker areas and they thought there were seas. We're going to talk about that in a little while. They could see the mountains. And of course, you could see that terminator line, that edge between light and darkness on the edge of the moon. Um, and he could see that there was a huge relief to the moon. And I think anybody even now just looking at the moon, and certainly if you look at it through binoculars or any kind of telescope, if you can't <laughs> perceive that that is a ball, something's wrong. But obviously, Galileo must have been kind of going, hmm, okay, well, there's a big ball going around us, and I've heard some tell that we're maybe on a big ball. I wonder if the other big bright thing in the sky is a ball as well, which is the beginning, of course, of the heliocentric model of the solar system. But those very early days, they're obviously trying to immediately trying to work out, well, where did the moon come from? And the original kind of three theories that surround the formation of the moon go like this. The first one was called the fission theory. That was put forward by Sir George Howard Darwin, who was actually the son of Charles Darwin. So you can just imagine the kind of conversations they had around their dinner table where one of them is discussing the Galapagos Islands and the development of finches and maybe we all evolved from apes. And meanwhile, the other one's trying to work out where the moon came from. Like, uh, whew, must have been tricky to get the bread past your way at that uh, dinner party. But his idea was that basically uh, the moon had come about from the rotation of Earth had been of such a velocity that early on in the development of our planet, a big lump of it had kind of fallen off, <laughs> kind of gone flying off into space, like the wing mirror falling off your car, you know. This, though, even at a basic, I'm obviously not a scientist, at a basic lay level, if you've got any understanding of engineering, you're like, well, the planet must have been going around pretty fast for a big piece of it to uh, fall off. His idea was that this bit had just been kind of birthed off the side of the planet. And he felt that the place to look as to like, a, where did this thing come from was the Pacific Basin. And so the theory went, the fission theory went that a big lump of the Earth's mantle had kind of fallen out of the Pacific Basin and had become the moon. Clearly, though, this is not necessarily connected to reality, but it did still have a little toehold in science culture by the 60s and 70s, by the 1960s, 1970s. So a lot of geology that was being done at that time, though, particularly on the seafloor of the Pacific, was starting to show that that area of the, the world's mantle is actually, uh, or that Earth's crust rather, is actually very young. So it's the least likely place for a big piece to have fallen, fallen off. The other theory was um, put about by a guy called Harold Ure, who was uh, already a Nobel Prize winner. In the 1960s, he put out this idea of the capture theory that basically uh, a wandering, called, it's called a planetesimal, uh, like a proto-planet. It's on its way to being something, but one of those kind of came past the Earth, I the moon was just wandering around doing its own thing. And then it kind of came past the earth and then got attracted in by gravity somehow and then became part of, you know, what we're doing. Again, if you have any kind of understanding of engineering, it's like, hmm, are you sure about that, Harold? Because there has to be a decelerating effect on this planetesimal, this, this planetoid, this, well, the moon, that the moon has to get slowed down from its like journey through the solar system so that it comes in and slows and becomes part of uh, the, uh, the Earth's gravitational field. And that would require the atmosphere of the planet to be thousands and thousands and thousands of miles deep so that there was enough friction for the moon to come in and get stuck alongside the planet, slow down and then it kind of come into the orbit that we know it's in now. So that also, you know, a bit kind of out there. The other one is this thing of like proximal development that basically another planetoid had developed nearby the Earth in the early solar system and that it just kind of got attracted in. And this was actually put about by a guy called Thomas Jefferson Jackson C, who was, <laughs> he was uh, famed for his attacks on Einstein's theories 
and uh, and for plagiarism. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, not good on any of those ones. Lots of bad decisions on your behalf. It's an interesting point is that the development of the moon, which you may think, well, like, we totally got that all worked out. It actually gets to 1984, where they're having a conference in Kona in Hawaii and the founders of the conference, the conveners, sorry, of the conference, Bill Hartman, Roger Phillips and Jeff Taylor, they challenged the other lunar scientists that were coming to the conference. And 18 months before, they said, go back to your Apollo data. That's the Apollo 11, the moon rock data, all that stuff. Go back to your Apollo data. Go back to your computer. Do whatever you have to, but make up your mind. <laughs> Don't come to our conference unless you have something to say about the moon's birth. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. It's like, don't turn up here with all these kind of wishy-washy ideas. We want to have some kind of like consensus. So Bill Hartman continues. He says, before the conference, there were partisans of the three traditional theories, right? The proximal development, the uh, capture, and the fission theory, uh, plus a few people who were starting to take the giant impact theory seriously. And there was a huge apathetic middle who didn't think the debate would ever be resolved. Afterward, there were essentially only two groups, the giant impact theory camp and the agnostics, okay? So this key moment... They just put it down to everybody and said, you're going to have to decide like what happened here. So what is then the giant impact theory? Oh, you hear that? <laughs> now that may sound like machine gun fire, but to just bring you into the reality of what's going on, I am in the barn as, as always. You'll be glad to know that temperatures have risen. It is now uh, over 15 Celsius in the barn. Interestingly, it's 25 Celsius outside. So it's a little chilly. Still got a jumper on, I got a hat on. But now woodpeckers have come out of wherever woodpeckers go in the winter. And uh, what they do is they knock their beaks against the tin roofs on the top of the barn and on the chimney of our house. I don't know, they're like communicating with each other or sending messages to aliens. It's like some kind of crazed Morse code, these things on the, on the roof. So if you hear that in the background, I'm not actually under enemy fire. It is, in fact, gangs of uh, marauding woodpeckers knocking on the roof. Like I'm not sure which one of those sounds more unrealistic. All right, but the giant impact theory, remember we're talking about the moon, not woodpeckers. Um, <laughs> the giant impact theory is the beginning of where the story of the moon gets really, really interesting. I've got to tell you, and you probably already worked it out, I actually have notes that I'm working from because there's so much information here and I wanted to give you the best possible uh, version of it. We have to go back to the origins of our solar system, and not the origins of the universe per se, but we can put it in terms of that and start to find out where did the moon come from. So are you sitting comfortably? Okay, well, the universe presently is estimated to be about 13.772 billion years old. Now that, that sounds pretty crazy accurate, 772, but remember that a billion is a very big number. So even when you do it to three decimal points, you're still talking hundreds of thousands of years, all right? So uh, it's 13.7 billion years old, and about 4.5 billion years ago, where we are now was just a big, dense cloud of interstellar gas and dust and not much really kind of going on. It was kind of the sticks, but What's thought to have happened is that a nearby star reaching the end of its life went supernova, created a shockwave, and that shockwave collapsed this massive arrangement of interstellar gas, this big cloud of, of, of crap, which is basically where we came from. It collapsed it and caused the sun, as we now know it, to kick into gear, right? So in this very original kind of early days of the solar system around 4.5 billion years ago, there was a lot going on. Like it had recently in, in universal kind of time, it had been just a big load of kind of junk in space. Now suddenly things are starting to coalesce and accrete, like accretion, the coming together of material. Accretion was occurring in a basically uniform disk around the, the sun and lumps of heavier matter was starting to come together and form what we now recognize as planets. And of the planets which are in closest to the sun, we've got 
Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. They're all the rocky planets, all right? And then you've got, you go into a lot of the gas giants, and then you go into more rocky planets afterward. That inner area of the solar system, the rocky inner area, may well have had as many as double the planets that it's got now, okay? So there's just a lot going on, but all sorts of things are flying around, all sorts of crazy trajectories, orbits, all sorts of things are happening. We haven't yet had the billions of years, which of course all this is measured in, for things to kind of settle down and for this massive kind of intergalactic game of uh, pool to kind of like for the table to settle somewhat. So at that point, the giant impact theory says is that there was another planetary body which came together with Earth. This early planetary body has been given the name Thea. And Thea, if you're interested, is actually the mother of Selene. She is one of the Titans, and she gives birth to Selene in Greek mythology. And so Thea was what the, was the name given to this planetary body that hit proto-Earth about 4.5 billion years ago, right? So it's already getting interesting, right? This giant thing hits us. Now, how big was it? It was about the size of Mars. <laughs> it's not like big. It's like super, super big. We're talking a level of impact, which is beyond anything we can even put out a description for, for, for what it was like. We're dealing with a planet, which at this point was just molten magma. It was just hot rocks, basically. And it got crashed into by another giant hot rock. The thing about this, which they're still trying to understand, is exactly how everything got going. We've got a couple of elements that we need to account for. Number one is that the, our planet is spinning. Number two is the fact that our planet is not spinning like vertically upright on an axis that's at perpendicular to the, the, the plane of the orbit as we go around the sun. We are tilted at 23.5 degrees, which gives us our seasons, which is, you know, an, an awesome aspect of, of living on this planet. <laughs> we also need to account for the fact that the moon is, is orbiting us and that it is locked in and we only ever kind of see one side of it. So there's lots of different elements that in this model, this theory, have to come to bear, but also since we were on the moon and we got, you know, 300 kilos of moon rocks back and we're starting to look through these and starting to get some real solid information from them, we've started to actually look at the isotopes of tungsten which are in the moon rocks and this, this chronometry of how old things are, we're able to look at the decay rate of tungsten on the moon rocks and compare it to the decay rate of isotopes of tungsten on the planet, and we realize that they are basically the same. So the model that comes out of the giant impact theory is not 100%, because how, how could you possibly know, but it's trying on as many counts as possible to cover all the different elements. That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit now. So when Thea hits the planet, what seems to have happened is that most of Thea went into the center of our planet, our proto-planet at that point. The, the, the solid iron core which planets have, uh, with the heavier elements come closer to the center of the planetoid, the lighter elements are out near the crust. When they crashed together, most of it went into the Earth, leaving some uh, soft iron, to become the core of the moon. And at this point, there would have been just a giant junkyard of crap flying around the earth. Like this would have been a disaster time. But it seems from what the models show that in as little as a hundred years, now, you know, four and a half billion years ago, one century is not very much, but very, very quickly, what was out there, which was going around as close as 18,000 miles away, which is, you know, nothing, it started to all kind of come together and coalesce into the beginnings of what is the moon. And the key element is it got to, there was so much material and it was all being collected up on a very particular path because it was all going around our planet that it got to a point where it, under its own gravitational forces, it started to self-round. And there are not many things in the solar system that do that. There are a couple of other things flying around our solar system, which in the 1800s were considered planets. If you were looking at a planetary table, if you were learning about the solar system in the 1800s, you would have had Mercury, and then Venus, and then Earth, and then Mars. But before you got to Jupiter, which we consider the next one out, you would have had Ceres, Vesta, Pallas, and Juno. <laughs> For 50 years, they were considered 
uh, other planets. Now, after a while, we started to kind of like define what a planet is, its size and its orbit and a number of things, which these days have meant that actually Pluto's not considered a planet. But of those elements, which very soon became subplanetary uh, and not recognized anymore as, as being planets of the solar system, but of those series is actually of a size where it also has become gravitationally rounded. So it's not just that we're kind of like guessing about how things kind of came together around us and how the moon might have come about. We can look out into space. We have sent space probes out to Ceres and out to Vesta to take pictures of them. You can look online and find pictures of Ceres and you can see that it's a self-rounded planetoid. So uh, this is what happened to our moon. But as I said, at the time it was rushing around very much closer to us than it is now. So in those early, early days of it, the moon, which it's pretty big, I don't know if you <laughs> have noticed, but it's pretty big. It's uh, 81 million billion tons. Okay, so I did not stutter. It's 81 million billion tons. And that makes it the fifth largest satellite in the solar system, but it is also disproportionately large compared to the Earth. There are other satellites in the solar system which are the same size or bigger than the, the moon, but none of them are going around planets which are as small comparatively as the Earth is to the moon. So it is quite a special kind of relationship we have with this thing. But at that very early time, the, the moon would have only been about 18,000 miles away. And at 18,000 miles, it's considerably closer than it is now, like 15 times closer than it is now. At the moment, the moon averages about 238,000 miles away. It does come closer, it does go further away, we'll be discussing that, but this at the moon at this point was just 18,000 miles away. So what effect was that having to us? We've got to remember that we're discussing here four point, <clears throat> my God, I'm getting emotional about this, 4.5 million, sorry, 4.5 billion years ago, not million, billion years ago, a thousand million is a billion. 4.5 billion years ago, the moon was rushing around and the, our planet was rotating a lot faster than it was now. So in trying to reconcile all the different elements of this theory and of this model, what people are thinking is that when Thea hit us, she hit us with like a glancing blow. And that may well have started the angular momentum, the, the rotation of the planet. Um, and it may well have at that point knocked us onto this 23.5 degree axis away from the vertical, which now gives us our season. But that speed of rotation would have meant that it would have been like, hold on tight, boys, on the planet, because we would have had a rotational speed which was equal to a full day of rotation now occurring in just six hours. We would have been going around four times faster. We have an angular momentum of 4,000 miles an hour, okay? So at the moment, as you listen to this, you must always be amazed by the world that we live on. Your angular momentum is 1,000 miles an hour as we stand and speak to each other. But at this point early on, whether it was Thea that got us spinning or whether we were spinning already, we were going around at a hell of a rate of knots. Now, the moon is very, very close to that point. It's having a very large effect on us. So let's try and imagine what would have been happening on our planet at this point. That the planet's cooling over the next like 500 million years, the planet's starting to cool. You're starting to get uh, a lot of water, obviously, is uh, sloshing around on this planet. And we all know that the moon has an effect on the tides. What effect do you think the moon was having on the tides when it was 15 times closer than it is now? Well, the answer is tides would have been about a thousand times higher <laughs> than they are now, all right? The moon was so, can you imagine what it would look like when it was 15 times closer than it is now, and you're on a planet, well, obviously there was nobody there, it's not like they were watching this, it wasn't National Geographic out filming this. All this water in the oceanic basin was being pulled around by the, the moon. The moon is exerting its own gravitational force. The sun affects the tides as well, absolutely, but let's focus on the moon. The moon is so close that it's creating this highly focused tidal movement on the planet, which has got a large bulge underneath the moon. And because of centripetal effects, there's another bulge on the other side of the planet at the Antipodean position, the opposite position on the surface of the globe, where water is rushing around thousands and thousands of feet deep. 
and it is rushing hundreds of miles inshore when it comes onto a, a, a raised continental landmass. And then the moon picks up the water on the other side of the continental landmass and drags that across. So can you imagine the washing machine that that must have been? Like, it's basically impossible for anything complicated to exist at that time. But we're talking about a time which is way before life, way before anything. We're at a point now, though, where there are proteins in the water, where there are amino acids in the water. And what's very interesting is that this period where the moon is having this just huge effect on the planet, thousand foot high tides racing around every six hours, well, two of them actually, every three hours, huge amounts of material from the ocean is being dragged onto the land. And then when the water recedes back into the oceanic basin, it drags huge amounts material off the land and when that happens that's where you get the melting pot which is the beginning when we talk about the primordial swamp or the primordial soup or anything like that, it's actually primordial washing machine and it's the moon that's doing most of it it is just churning everything up it's ripping proteins apart it's recombining things because of the enormous amount of energy that's being pushed into the the system at a chemical level. Um, it's also interesting that a little bit of theory has been kind of worked out with this. And the, once DNA started to develop and these kind of more complex structures started to appear, the drying out periods between the, the tide passing and then everything dries out a bit and then the tide comes again, that, that period may have been when the first splits and multiplication and division of DNA occurred, that as it was drying out and the, the salinity levels and the acidity levels were increasing as things dried out, that may well be when we've got the first splitting of DNA and the, the, the origins of life that as we know it. So we can thank the moon for getting life potentially going on this planet. But still, at this point, 3.5 billion years ago, uh, it's a pretty wild place. And so something is going to have to happen because it's great, you know, all right, you're a, maybe you're a single-celled whatever and you can exist in uh, the giant frothing washing machine that is uh, proto, well, not proto-Earth, but very early Earth. Maybe you can exist in that, but if you're going to become more developed, like into anything other than a single cell organism, things are going to have to calm down a bit. Now, when and how does that happen? The moon at this point is still in its infancy, just as the Earth is in infancy. And what we can discuss a little bit now is like the way that the moon looks is uh, is very interesting. We have these things like the sea of tranquility on the moon. We have these dark and light patches on the moon. Now, what are they and where do they come from and why are we calling these things seas? When people were originally looking at the moon and they saw the dark areas, they thought they were seas. They thought they were mares, seas, like from Lemur, okay, the, the, the ocean. These mares, as they've been called, are actually upwellings of darker, less reflective a basalt rock coming up out of the molten core of the young moon. Okay, so they would be basically the surface of the moon was a giant molten ocean. And one of the figures that I looked at said that at the initial stage, you could have been dealing with a molten ocean that was over 100 kilometers deep. As that shell started to kind of solidify and harden, it would still be being uh, racked and, and messed up by massive asteroidal impacts and the gravitational effect of the planet and that would be cracking and moving that crust and that's where these heavier elements these metallic elements would be coming up and oozing out onto the surface and then hardening off in the the cold and the vacuum of space to give us these darker areas the specific minerals that a lot of the moon is made from are actually quite reflective which is why we have this incredible effect of you know the moon lighting up and bouncing the light of the sun back to us and giving us the wonderful uh, uh, lighting arrangements, which is the full moon. But the darker areas is where you've got minerals which are not as reflective. And, you know, we all know about people that are like moon conspiracy theorists and all this kind of stuff. And they're looking at like the angle of lighting under the lunar module. And that couldn't have been done because you would need studio lights. No, the surface of the moon, those compounds that are on the surface of the moon, they are naturally quite reflective. If the moon was made from all basaltic rock like we see in the Mares, like in the Sea of Tranquility, those darker areas that give the man in the moon his face, 
the moon wouldn't be very reflective at all. And it'd be a whole less, lot less interesting to look at. The moon itself then obviously is not 18,000 miles away now. So how did it get further away? And how did our planet calm down to the point where more complex life can start to occur? Well, all of this is connected to the fact that we have only one side of the moon to look at. When Thea impacted to proto-Earth, it's likely that the way that things started to accrete afterwards in this, uh, this disk, this junkyard of, of rock that was circulating the planet, the way that it started to form up, it's not entirely balanced. We do know that the crust on the backside of the moon is about 50 miles, sorry, 50 kilometers thicker than it is on our side. And we know that uh, the center of mass of the moon is closer to us. Okay, so the moon is shaped a bit like an egg, but what's interesting, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we'll go with it. It's not a complete spheroid, but what we are looking at is slightly smaller side on our side of it, but it's where more of the heavy iron core is. So the center of um, mass of the moon is closer to us, but the center of the moon's volume is further away from us. Uh, it means that the big rounded bottom side of the egg is on the other side, but the chick inside the egg is <laughs> the heavy bits on our side, all right? What we've got then is this out of balance thing, which is no doubt spinning around us after all of this, uh, this hullabaloo has gone on with this uh, impact of these two major planetoid bodies. What's out there is slightly out of balance. And if it was spinning, well, it would very, very quickly in geological and, and, and in terms of the age of the solar system, it would very quickly slow down. Anybody, again, who's got any kind of engineering instinct, you know, if, if something's got some weight in one end of it and you throw it in the air, you know that that heavier end is coming down first. If you've got water in a water bottle and that thing that everyone loves doing of trying to get the water bottle to stand upright after some crazy athletic throw, get it to stand up on top of the basketball hoop or get it to stand up on top of the you know beam in the barn oh that's a good idea the uh the fact is that that mass is going to orientate the body that it's within and that's what happened with the moon people say well you know the moon is uh, just evidence of the fact that there's a kind of a watchmaker behind the scenes that's kind of constructed the universe for us and the why does the moon not turn and why is the moon exactly the same size as the sun in the sky and why does the moon totally eclipse the sun perfectly and all that kind of stuff it's like it's interesting in a way, I guess, in a basic way, like a child to look at it, but your personal incredulity at science does not therefore make the rules of the universe. What happened was that this mass on kind of one side of the moon meant that it was being attracted to the planet more than other parts of the moon. So after a while, the moon's natural tendency to turn around would have been very quickly canceled out by the fact that one part of it was heavier and wanted to keep pointing towards the giant gravitational field of the planet it was orbiting. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the moon, of course, itself was having an effect on the water of the world, but the water of the world was also having an effect on the moon because why is the planet now rotating slower and why is the moon further away? Well, what happened was as the moon is moving all of this uh, water around, the planet is spinning at a hugely fast rate below it, below the moon. And that means that the bulge of water that the moon's creating is actually ahead of the moon. It's being whipped around by a crazy magnified Coriolis effect so that the giant bulge of water, two giant bulges, in fact, of water that the moon's creating are uh, themselves starting to create a friction which is starting to affect the, the planet, the Earth, okay? So the moon is creating these big bulges of water. The big bulges of water are just ahead of the moon because of the Coriolis effect, but they're dragging on the seabed and they're dragging on continental shelves and they're dragging on mountains. And what's happening is that the planet itself is being slowed slightly by the moon, okay? The moon is having this effect via the water bulges on the planet below it, and it starts to slow the planet down. Now, because energy needs to be conserved in this system, what's the other side of the equation? Well, the other side of the equation is that the moon starts to drift further away from the planet. What's happening is that that bulge of water, which is always ahead of the moon, has a giant 
mass to it and the, the earth itself is one gravitational field but where is the focus of that gravitational field it's just ahead of the moon so it's constantly like pulling the moon along pulling the moon along so whilst the moon's water bulges are slowing the planet those water bulges are ahead of the moon and they're accelerating the moon so the moon because it's an acceleration starts to move further and further away from the earth just like an olympic hammer thrower spins round and round and round and at the point of release whew, that hammer zooms away accelerates away from the hammer thrower because there is nothing anymore holding it going in a circle and for the moon suddenly the planet's slowing down a bit but these bulges which have been ahead of it have accelerated the moon up and so we start to move towards the situation we're in now where we have a moon which is sitting much further away from us and the planet thank god is going around a lot slower now in that slowed down environment where suddenly you're not dealing can you imagine what the effect would have been on the weather at that time the planet's rotating four times the speed it's going at now you basically have hurricane strength winds all the time massive tectonic action from the proximity of the uh, moon and tides are a thousand foot high that wash hundreds of miles inland but we have billions of years to go out here and so over the next billion years the planet starts to slow down and the moon starts to move further away and its effect on the tide starts to lessen and so we are left in a situation where we have a tilted axis at 23.5 degrees which gives us our summer autumn winter seasonal shift if the planet was just permanently on a vertical upright axis then what would happen is that all parts of the world would get 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark and the polar regions would be permanently under hundreds of miles of ice and the equators would be absolutely arid, completely impossible to deal with desert. But because the planet's on this tilted axis, we get this seasonality, okay? The moon is starting to move further away. The planet's starting to slow down. The tides are not as high. The wind and the weather and the general ecology is starting to calm down. And after this period of like, washing machine a primordial situation these developing elements of life have a more calm environment to become more complex organisms which is the beginning of course of of us and life and all the rest of it that's going on here right okay so all good so far but there's a couple of uh, key elements that we can see on the moon's surface which we haven't really covered yet and one of them is where do all those craters come from so over 80% of the surface of the moon is totally ravaged by um, meteorites coming in. And these craters which are left range from like half a mile across to 500 miles across. There's a giant amount of activity been going on there. About 4 billion years ago, so, you know, <laughs> 500, was that 500 million years into this story of the moon, the moon's a bit further away. But then we have a period which they refer to as the uh, lunar cataclysm. And this is where what they think happened, there's lots of thinks in this, but every time I say think, it comes from a piece of theory and a piece of research and a piece of understanding which exists elsewhere, which is then they're trying to piece this thing together. Remember, 1984, they decide, okay, <laughs> how did where the moon come from? So we're still in the infancy of this. But there was an alignment between Saturn and Jupiter, which changed their orbits. Suddenly, the kind of status quo which had built up changed, and suddenly asteroids which had been in quite a... Uh, stable kind of pattern were flung back in towards the inner solar system and when that happened the earth obviously as one of the larger constituents uh, of the inner solar system was a, a major shooting gallery for these things so the planet itself our planet has gone through so much change that there's very little information to be recovered of you know what was going on on the surface of our planet four billion years ago but by looking at the moon we actually get an idea because once this cataclysm had died down there's nothing else going on on the moon there's no tectonic action there's no uh, weathering there's no anything else so we can look and see in a snapshot something that happened like very very early on in the in the origin and history of our planet and this raining fire of of asteroids coming in of course if the moon had been on its own it probably would have dodged a lot of it because it's quite a small target but with the gravitational field of the earth there to attract these things in it, it got pummeled but 
it has been our companion because look at the amount of hits it's got. There's over 300,000 crater sites on the moon. And that means that it's acted as a blocker for us, uh, knocking out a lot of these things that were coming in. So thanks to Celine for that. The moon now starts to drift away from the planet. As the planet slows down, that change in angular momentum, it has to be worked out across the equation. What happens is that the moon starts to move further off away from the planet. And if you're interested, the the moon is still drifting away from us. On 1969 to 1972, we were doing the Apollo missions and they left an 18 inch reflective plate up there, which is still regularly, I think on a daily basis, regularly hit with a laser from the UK. Uh, is it from the UK or from the earth? Anyway, I, I Maybe it's in America, actually, but they regularly bombard it with a laser to uh, calculate the distance to the moon. And what they have found is that the moon is getting about 1.5 inches, about 3.8 centimeters further away every year. <laughs> and it's still having an appreciable effect. It's slowing the rotation of the planet by about 2.3 milliseconds every century. So the, Earth, the moon is further away now from the Earth, but it is still slowing the planet down. Those tides, when you see the waves coming in and you see the tide coming in, remember that it's, it's having a friction effect. The ocean is clawing at the Earth, trying to slow it down, despite the fact, obviously, it's so massive. But the moon continues to get further away and the the planet starts to continues to slow down. Now, this will have a number of interesting effects. Number one is that the response to the discussion that we are living on like a planned planet, the relative size of the sun and the moon at the moment is a basically a fluke that will only exist for a certain period of time. And we're living in it. And we should give thanks for that, that when there is a fantastic eclipse and you get that little annular eclipse thing where it's just a, a bright ring of light and then you get the engagement ring moment where a little diamond of light nips its way around the side of the moon, that's only happening now. And it's not happening later on. Like if humans stay around for the next 500 million years, like go humans, they may well not see that. We are living in a really cool time for this sort of stuff, but the moon is getting further away. And in the end, that won't work. So to look at that and say, oh my God, it's planned. You're looking at a coincidence and calling it planned out. The other thing which the moon has done, which is uh, connected to precession and the wobble of the planet on its axis, as I said, it's 23 and a half degrees off to one side at an average. The thing that the moon has also done, because its size and its proximity, it has stabilized us on that uh, oblique axis. So that obliquity, that shift away from the vertical into this kind of altered axis angle that we're on now, that obliquity is expressed in other planets. Like Mars is also wobbling around, right? But because it doesn't have a large moon that can help out to stabilize it, it wobbles around a lot. And when they're looking at Mars and trying to work out why life didn't develop there, obviously it's colder and there's all sorts of elements that you could point at. But one of the things they point at is the fact that it wobbles so much on its axis that the variety of heating and cooling characteristics across the surface of the planet would be so varied that it'd be very difficult for anything to develop there. Look at it from our point of view. We have our seasons, no problem at all, but basically this tropics stays basically the tropics and the poles stay basically the poles. But if you were had what's called an instable and unstable, sorry, unstable obliquity, and the planet's just rocking and rolling anyway. It's spinning around, but it's rocking and rolling anywhere like a gyroscope when it gets towards the end of the kind of its go and it's starting to look like almost fall over. It would mean that the tropics could be plunged into the polar regions. The polar regions could be swung up to the latitude of the uh, Sahara Desert. Like it would be all over the place. And there'd be no way again that life could develop because how can it ever get adapted to where it's at. Like it would just always be staying in the in the very simple form that could survive those kind of changes of temperature and uh, the, the instability that that kind of unstable axis would cause. So the moon may well have got our planet spinning. It may well have put us on this axis that gives us our seasons. It may well have created the churning primordial swamp of, of uh, very early DNA and, and even maybe caused the original kind of splitting of DNA. And then kind of stayed with us as a partner and stabilized the axis of the planet and then moved off and allowed things to calm down to get us to where we're at now. And that, when you start looking at the moon, you start thinking about this stuff, you're like, whoa, the moon is cool. Yeah, and the moon is cool. It's really, really cool. A couple of facts here about the moon. 
I mentioned this earlier on that uh, how big it is, but to, to say again, it's 81 million billion tons. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's about 1% of the mass of the planet. And it's about 2% of the volume of the planet. And at night, the temperature will go down to about minus 230 Celsius, that's 380 Fahrenheit. And in the daytime, it go up to about 120 Celsius, uh, 250 Fahrenheit. So it, it, it is a, a very difficult environment to be in. It has mountains. It has mountains which go up to about 16,000 feet. That's 4,800 meters, which I found out is basically the height of Mont Blanc, which is the highest mountain in Europe. Um, so there's a, you know, a vast array of kind of features. That's what Galileo Galilei was looking at first and going, oh, hang on. <laughs> this is not just some perfect celestial crystal. This is like, this is like a whole other world, right? There are about 135 other moons in our solar system, and Saturn has 46 of them. But none of them have this size ratio, which has been so important, as you now realize, to getting Earth going with life and all the rest of it. There are, if you're interested as well, <laughs> did you know we actually have 10 satellites going around our planet? If you look at stable orbits, that things that have been up there for a long time, I found out that there are 10 things orbiting the planet, all right? So can you name them? I, I don't know the moon. And then you can't say like the space station and stuff like that, it's too low down. There are five asteroids, asteroids, there are five asteroids which have been caught temporarily in orbit and their orbits are not degrading fast enough that it will be, you know, within lifetimes. So they are satellites, although in the, again, the solar system's lifetime, they're temporary. But then four of them are probably parts of the Saturn V rocket. <laughs> That's what it says here that we have 10 things, one's the moon, five are asteroids caught temporarily, and four things orbiting our planet are uh, Saturn V rockets, which are, or parts of them, which are not in degrading orbits and are just going round and round and round. So kind of interesting. The other thing which is interesting is that how much of the moon you can see, it's not 50%. I think that's one thing also we get an idea of like, oh, we can only see one half of the moon. It's tidally locked into us. So when you ever see one side of it, that dense core is closer to us. So it's become kind of stuck on this side. And there are lots of other moons in the um, solar system that do this also. So it's not like we're kind of like guessing at this stuff. We see it happening elsewhere. But there's something called libration, which is where you get like different kind of looksies at the moon, which means you can actually end up across a year seeing 59% of the moon. And libration happens diurnally. When you get up in the morning and you're on the planet, you know, the sun's just come up and the moon is ahead of you and you look at it, then you're getting one kind of angle of view of it. And then as our planet rotates underneath the much slower rotating moon, if you get another glimpse of the moon towards the evening, before it sets, you actually kind of seen a little bit more of the other side of it. And that kind of libration, that diurnal libration, lets us see a bit more of the moon. There's another one, and that's the one that's often accredited to um, Galileo came up with this, and that's the latitudinal libration. And that's the fact that the moon's orbit does not go round exactly around like the equator of the earth. Like things aren't lined up that perfectly. It's actually out by about 6.7 degrees, which means that it has a kind of slightly changing angle, which you can see over even a month. And that's what Galileo started to realize is that the moon itself is not perfectly lined up with our equator. So we get to see a little bit more kind of like the top of it and a little bit more like at the bottom of it as it goes round as in a month, plus being able to see slightly more of the left and the right of it, if you see where I'm going with this, on a diurnal basis. The last one of these is uh, longitudinal libration, which is the fact that the moon's orbit is actually um, elliptical. It doesn't go round as in a perfect circle. So the angle that we see it at, basically, as it gets to the narrow end of its orbital egg, we see it at a slightly different angle where it's getting ahead of us or getting behind us. And that, again, increases the amount of kind of left-right angle that we see on the moon. So you get the diurnal peak around the sides and then this longitudinal libration because of the uh, egg-shaped orbit of the moon. We, again, as we kind of like catch up to it and then accelerate past it as it's going around this egg shape, we get to see a little bit more kind of left and right uh, on it. So 59% of the moon is, is how much we can see. And again, it is pretty incredible. Galileo was working this out in 1600, 1632, that kind of period. I find that interesting on two different levels. Number one, 
it's only 400 years ago that we've started looking at the moon carefully enough to work out, oh, we can kind of see more than just 50% of it. But also, isn't it incredible that it was 400 years ago that people were looking at this thing and going, oh, wow, look, the moon. So I'm always constantly amazed at like how long it took us to work stuff out. And yet, in terms of the accepted history of humans as it is now being taught to children without getting into anything too controversial, you know, 400 years ago, we were, we were working this stuff out. And that is pretty awesome. You can imagine that Galileo was, <laughs> yeah, clearly he had some ideas which uh, probably weren't that um, popular at the time. They had some other ideas, of course. So this thing then of the, of the moon going around is on this elliptic orbit is the one of the last kind of facts I want to throw out about this, which is the fact that the moon is further away from us and closer to us on quite a regular basis. It has an apogee and a perigee. The apogee of the moon is when it is furthest away from us, and that's when it's going to be about 253,000 miles away. And the perigee, which is when it's closest, is about 221,000 miles. So that's a pretty big variation. You know, that's uh, the, the, the pull of the moon is going to be about 20% stronger when it's at perigee closest to us. And then it's, uh, it's going to be moving out. The, the distance that it moves away from is about 150% of the circumference of Earth. Like it's a considerable distance. And this is one of the things which then gets into the more the kind of fringe science more towards getting into like the weird kind of mysticism around the moon so we'll just touch on it this thing of lunatic that the fact that people kind of go mad around the time of the full moon is there any basis to that well i did a bit of digging around and the most up-to-date research on this says that no absolutely not there's no connection whatsoever between the moon and levels of violence what have you however in 1976, the American Journal of Psychology studied 35,000 crimes and noted that there was a spike in criminal activity around the full moon. And a year later, in 77, research studying 18,000 psychiatric patients showed that they were much more likely to be admitted to hospital around the full moon than at any other time. So that's kind of interesting. And then, again, more kind of anecdotal evidence coming from police officers, firefighters, medics, people that run shelters for the homeless. They all, even in the modern day, say there is a lot more business for them, uh, if you want to put it like that, around the full moon. So is there a way that the moon's still affecting us? Like, is its gravitational effect felt by us well we are very small as individuals and the fluid inside our bodies is very very small so we are only going to feel a tiny percentage of the potential gravitational pull of the moon the moon's gravitational pull moves the oceans but what does it do inside us well, not much if you get a p and hold a p about 20 inches above your head that's about that p is exerting about the same amount of gravitational effect on you as the moon but it may be that there's things which are more kind of connected to our very early DNA. The full moon lights the forest, lights the prairie, lights the mountains in, in a completely different way than any other time of the month. And that may make it a much better time for predators. And it may make it a much more worrying, cautious time for animals which are you know, preyed upon. So it's possible that in our developing DNA, there is some kind of affinity to kind of where the moon's at. Whether that is real or not, we'll have to kind of decide. But the word lunatic is in our language because of it. The other thing which is a bit more fringe is people looking at whether the moon has effect still on the tectonic plates of the planet and whether we can predict volcanoes and earthquakes uh, on the moon's movements. You see, the sun has an effect on the planet. The sun has an effect on the oceans. Uh, if we get neaps and springs, that's where the sun is either helping the moon to move the tides or it's in opposition to it and therefore kind of nullifying its effect slightly. But if we look at um, the way that it's working on the magma below the crust of the planet, there is a thought that as plates, our tectonic plates are subducting and going underneath each other as stresses and forces are being released. And, you know, these enormous continent-sized pieces of land are in motion. It may be that the moon getting very much closer to the earth as it gets to its perigee, its closest point, 221,000 miles away, that may be 
in conjunction with the sun, if the two are lined up, that may be enough to just kind of release pressures in the subducting plates. Now, this kind of uh, forecasting has been used to correctly forecast the explosion of numerous volcanoes and actually forecasted within a pretty decent range of accuracy the 2004 Asian earthquake that obviously created that awful tsunami and a year later the Pakistani earthquake which was like a 7.6 on the Richter scale so it potentially does have some kind of use but it's definitely not understood by mainstream science right now I think it's you know if it's moving all of the fluids on the surface of the planet around there's something to be said for the likelihood that it's moving around the fluids beneath the crust as well but again it's not particularly well understood so where does it go in the end well in the end, the moon is going to continue just drifting away from us, all right? So it's moving away at that inch and a half every year. Our planet will slow down a little bit further. The moon will get just far enough away that it's not therefore being affected by this change of angular momentum of the planet. And it will come kind of into a, a point of equilibrium with the planet. Unfortunately, <laughs> forecasts indicate that'll be about 5 billion years from now, uh, which should exactly line up with the end of our star, which, by the way, is called Sol. If we're doing all this, now we have Selene, we have the Earth, and we have Sol, okay? So we put some names on these things. But yeah, we're going to go from where we are right now. The, the sun will start to go into the end of its life, where it becomes a red giant. And at that point, it will expand to be pretty much the size of Earth's orbit right now. So the moon and the Earth uh, at that point, still together, still bound together will be incinerated so um <laughs> get your uh, camp chairs out for that one it's going to be quite the show so yeah i gotta say like obviously i've done a lot of research i put a lot of uh, facts into this i hope it wasn't too dry and too boring to listen to but i I guess what's happened is over the years, I've become a little bit jaded by being at sea. Um, I used to know a lot of the stars and I used to know a lot of the, the, you know, the myths and the legends that are connected to the stars and things. I started thinking about the moon because we were talking about um, Joshua Slocum in one of the previous ones when I was discussing my sailing heroes. And I was saying that he had some very odd navigational practices based around him using the moon, which is astronav using the moon is possible, but it's, it's very complicated because the moon's in motion like big time it's moving fast right so it's not really seen as being a uh, a fantastic method of doing that but he was using it and that's cool it got me thinking about it but then getting into this stuff like if you do anything today go on the wikipedia page for the moon first you're gonna <laughs> find out where some of my facts came from not all i did do quite a lot of digging around but just follow it down find out that you know there's other uh, things in our solar system which were planets and like until 1850 there was like three other things that were planets and now Pluto's not a planet and we are just learning this stuff we have no real scooby what's going on but when you look at the moon like it was a whole other planetoid <laughs> like the size of Mars that crashed into us four billion odd years ago and got us spinning. And then it's been with us all the way through, stabilizing our axis, creating potentially the very basic components of life on our planet. That thing up there, that bright white light in the sky, it's literally... The, the, it is literally the reason that I am able to stand here and talk to you and that you are able to take your dog for a walk this evening or sit with your glass of wine and listen to this. Or isn't it incredible? I know they always say, oh, we're made of star stuff and all that kind of stuff, but literally like this giant cloud of gas and dust just imploded. And then, yeah, there was some potential there. We were kind of Goldilocks. We were just, you know, the right distance from the sun and all that kind of stuff. Cool. But then what's the other element? It's that thing that's up there. Like, it's got real history to it. So I found it very, very interesting. So we could do a podcast looking at uh, the, uh, the moon landing hoax theory. That would be an interesting one. I'm not sure if you're into that or if you know about that. There are some people that believe that we didn't go to the moon. I was like, oh, that kind of sounds interesting. Maybe we didn't go. I could see the, that side of the argument. But as I've started to learn more and more and more about it, do deep research and really... Uh, uh, understand the details of it, you start to find out that we have done some incredible things. And one of the incredible things was getting people up off the surface of our planet and onto the moon. One of the facts that I came up with with uh, researching this is that the Saturn V rocket had 15 million horsepower. <laughs> That's what it took, 15 million horsepower to get 
all of the Apollo stuff up into the sky far enough to escape the, uh, the gravitational field of the Earth. And that the lunar module, because the gravity is only one-sixth, and obviously it was a lot smaller, it only had 6,000 horsepower to get it back up off the lunar surface. There's a whole other thing that we could talk about here, which is the fact that material from the Earth may well be on the moon. Do you know about this? There's, there's meteorites have been found. There's over 30, no, there's about 30 meteorites have been found on Earth, which are what's called lunar meteorites, and they have come from the moon. <laughs> Get a load of that. So basically, giant asteroids come in, impact the moon, but because of the low gravity on the moon, these explosions, which would have been easily visible from the Earth, have thrown debris up into the atmosphere, very thin atmosphere of the moon, but it's got such a velocity on it that it's actually crossed the gulf between the moon. Now, this may be when the moon was a little bit closer to the earth, but it's crossed whatever that gulf is between the moon and the earth. And then the earth's gravitational field has kind of sucked it in, but it survived coming in through our atmosphere. And we have pieces of lunar meteorites which come from the moon. And the theory is that during some of these big bombardments, actually as big meteorites came in and, and struck the planet, uh, struck Earth, they would have actually ripped holes in the atmosphere. So then when that impact occurred, there was very, very little air above the impact site. And there could well be debris which has been thrown out into space by these enormous, like, like the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, like six mile across type things hitting us. And that may well be that in the future, when we do go back to the moon, which is, of course, something exciting that's happening at the moment, we're going back to the moon, it seems. If we can find Earth meteorites on the surface of the moon, which they estimate there could be a thousand pounds of Earth rock in every square mile of the moon. <laughs> We've been exchanging like like a crazy in, like inter not intergalactic, but solar system level snowball fight between the Earth and the Moon, there may well be rocks on the Moon, which not only allow us to see the geology of our, the early Earth, but it is possible, it is desired, it is hopeful that if there were fossils possibly in any of those rocks, we may actually get to see yet more about the origins of life. So, as you look up at the moon in the next couple of days, wherever it's at, spare a thought for our little partner up there, Celine, who has done so much for us and um, is, is much more than some little thing to be hung up at Halloween or werewolves or, you know, lovers beneath the moon, all that kind of stuff. Don't worry about that. That's just kind of made up stuff that we put on it. The science of it, the history of it, like what it's been for us is completely incredible. And we are still at the beginnings of understanding what that is. It's literally 1984. They were like, okay, you've got to make your minds up. We've got to seem like we're a real science. How did this thing come around? It's giant. Everyone's looking at it. They know we don't know where it came from. So yeah, I guess the thing that leaves open to is if you've got your own theories about where the moon came from, throw them in there. Okay, parting, I'll leave you with this because we don't want to have it where it's all just science and it's all screwed down to the deck. Uh, universe may be a little older than, what was it, 13 point blah, 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 222777 billion years old. Uh, Luna 3, October 1959, rounded the moon and returned with the first photographs of the back of the moon, okay, which was pretty incredible. It looks like a bad fax from the 1990s if you've ever seen it, but it was our first time doing this. And when people have these controversies about, oh, how do we get to the moon? There was a lot of groundwork being done on either side of the Iron Curtain, which um, led to the reality of us going to the moon. But the other thing that the Russians did is that they, and the Americans did as well, is that to get closer images of the moon, they just drove these satellites into the moon, taking pictures all the way in. And those pictures were relayed to Earth before the thing was obviously destroyed on the surface. And they then were able to see for the first time kind of up close to the moon before we landed and sent proper pictures back. What's interesting, and that's our little conspiracy to end this on, is that there was research being done at the time where they were basically like listening to the moon, okay? Because you can you can aim a giant laser at it and you can sense the vibrations on the moon. And we have a lot of research now which shows that when the moon is impacted by meteorites, asteroids, or our own satellites that we crash into it, it rings like a bell. <laughs> and that's not me putting words in there. That's the words that are put in there by the scientists. Like you've got things where when the lunar module crashed back down into the moon after the first Apollo missions, the moon rang 
for like an hour afterwards. And there's a lot of interest about the mass of the moon and the volume of the moon and the fact that it rang like a bell afterwards because it shouldn't really have that kind of property. It should be that it's dense enough that it will, you know, it'll make a noise and it'll transmit sound, of course. But the fact that it rang so much for so long and it is so big with such a low density, there is a lot of uh, interesting notes to be found out there as to what is the internal structure of the moon. Now, I'm not saying it's made of cheese and I'm not saying it's hollow, but it may well be that it has large cavities inside it, which are a side effect of that accretion process that formed it, which means that it has the potential to have some secrets that we can find out about. The initial theory, the giant impact theory, basically says that uh, there would be no water on the moon whatsoever because of that initial very, very strong process of them coming together, very, very violent process, all water would have been burnt off. But recent evidence shows that there may well be water beneath the surface of the moon. And if that's so, <laughs> we still have a lot of very exciting mysteries to, to dig up and understand yet about the moon. It is a long way from done. Now, I see that the American government has now said that they will go back to the moon by 2024. This has happened sequentially over a number of decades. Like, there is, let's not get too excited until they're literally setting off. There have been all sorts of chit-chat about it before. There's been all sorts of chit-chat since 72, since the last time we actually sent men to the moon. So... Let's not believe them too much, but there is a lot more going on now. We see SpaceX at what, what they're doing, the SLS there. There's definitely like a kind of a gearing up thing. And I can only believe that with COVID-19 swooping in now, there has to be a bit of a feeling of like, well, it might be better if some humans are not on the planet in case X, Y, or Z happens. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But um, yep, that brings me towards the end of this. I hope that it hasn't been too dry and too boring. It is worth looking up at the moon, though. I'm going to dig out my telescope tonight. I'm going to have a look at that Terminator line and, and start to see some of these things. And, and for once, look up at this incredible sentinel that is in the sky above us and, uh, and appreciate what it's done for us. So any comments, any thoughts, any questions, any directions you want this to go? I think you're getting the idea that we're connecting this to sailing because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sailors use the moon to navigate because you can see more easily on the foredeck when the thing that started life on our planet is out and looking down on you. There you go. That's a connection to sailing. But if it's in our sphere, why not learn about it? Why not get a little bit of magic from it? Okay. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and continuing to look after yourself and those around you. I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Thank you.